Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we're answering some U.S.-centric listener questions. To do so, I'm joined by two friends. First up, it's Joe Lowry. Hello, friend Joe Lowry. Hello, friend Taylor Rockwell. I'm glad you returned safely from your trip up El Capitan, yes. as Graham and Ryan and I <laughs> talked about yesterday. It's good to have you back. Uh, my uh, my mother's partner did uh, do like a summit of El Cap where he slept on the mountain for like three nights uh, in making the summit. And so me climbing a little boulder, I did have this like, yeah, I climbed that rock and then remembered that not quite the same as what he did. But I did still survive. No broken legs, a few scrapes, but uh, that's to be expected. But yes, no broken legs. I remain alive. So that is very good. Also very good, Joe, is that we're joined by a man making his triumphant return. It's David Goss. Hello, David. I'm flexing on a podcast, <laughs> so everyone knows I'm back. <laughs> you are back. Uh, you did get your prediction point, correct, for the Women's World Cup? The Philippines sco- scoring a goal. Congratulations yes. to you. Thank you. Uh, I felt really good about that. And I want to say I got other ones right, I think, too, because I was tracking them on my own. Did I not get a single I, one right? I, that's unclear to me. All I know is that Ryan Just sort of there. like begrudgingly accepted your contribution. No, I know. Was, I was grateful. Okay, good. So you already yeah. know he was sort of like not thrilled with your hit rate. And I don't know what that actually looked like in terms of success points. But okay. So my VSPs were poor, but my flow <laughs> of what I was saying, aka I was sold on Australia. Which you mocked me for, and I was yeah, sold on the Philippines, which you mocked me for, and I'm pretty sure I picked the um, Panamanian player who scored in Cox. Who, who is the you that you're pointing at there? I think Just me. Like the I general think pointing audience, at me in particular. Or Joe or me or both? <laughs> I think Joe ran okay. the Aust- every team sure you do a preview of you think is going to win. Yeah. 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 It, it, felt, it felt like there was some overhyping being done, and... And I was completely incorrect. You were absolutely right on Australia. Tony Gustafsson and that team did an excellent job of progressing to the competition. You, I believe you did nail the Panamanian goal score, which is wild to me. Like, that is super impressive. So, no, Gost, you did well. Thank and you. Uh, I, I'm eager to hear more of your, uh, your your sort of prescient thoughts looking into the future. I, I will say I had some fun going, obviously, for the one-off 9 p.m. games to places to watch and people, like, talking about the World Cup and me getting pulled into conversations and knowing like an insane amount about Vietnam and the Philippines yeah, but and people being like, so like, what's your deal? And it's like, I'm just a super fan. <laughs> I don't have a deal. Do you Dude, not know a ton about this? Come on now. What are you doing? How do you not know about the Philippines national team yeah. in compared to Vietnam? Uh, that is one of my favorite things. I think I've said this before. I'll say it again about doing those previews is that you either get really hyped about a team or very worried about a team. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I don't know. They're going to be fine, I guess. Which and- I did to England. So I got that wrong. I mean, they were fine, I think. Uh, so in that way, you were correct. I but think no, they I, did I love, okay. 
I love getting the uh, the hype going. Maybe we'll do that today. Probably not when we talk about some of the teams we're going to talk about because we do have a few listener questions, as I said. I actually have a question for the two of you. I think there's an argument to be made that you are two of the most hustling, hardworking soccer analysts I know. Which one of you do you think is more likely to be doing soccer things at any given moment? I think Goss might have the edge because I believe he's also playing at least on at least one like actual team. Joe, I yeah. don't know how much you're playing. So yeah. I feel like Goss could be playing in the evening, could also be watching games, could also apparently be debating the Women's World Cup with random people in random bars. So- I'm more likely to do that than to actually watch games. I mean... I'm like knee deep in the FIBA World Cup right now, and I've got the U.S. Open starting. So I think Joe's got the soccer side of me beat for the next few weeks at it, minimum. It's hard to say. It might have been flow, right? If we're talking about any youth competitions going on at that particular time, Goss has the edge. And, and also <laughs> evenings, I think, is a safe bet because I don't I don't really play. I just I just talk about soccer because that's what I'm better at than playing soccer. And I know Goss does play and is around the game more than I am in person. So it might clear, just depend on well, the time of year. Well, you know, I, I feel you. But on that I one do. Now, I like so. to injure myself. It's a big We've all got to have a thing. Playing. We've all got to have a thing. So I, I think odds are it might be Goss, but I would bet it ebbs and flows a bit. No, all right. All right. That, that's good. And then I assume both of you are also uh, spending plenty of your time uh, focusing on Miami. I do need to do a little bit of housekeeping up front because we're talking about Major League Soccer. Uh, Messi, Miami, Busquets, Alba, Beckham, playoffs. Messi again, goals, amazing goals. Messi a third time. Joe, does that cover everything we need to talk about with Miami? I think our SEO hit is done for this episode. So great Did work. you mention Suarez? I didn't mention oh, no, I didn't my, Suarez. My Suarez rumor. Uh, yeah. There we go. Now we're good. Thank done. you, David. See, that's Chilean international, con- Luis Suarez. <laughs> That's why you're the professional uh, right there. Uh, Joe, you did write a a very nice piece uh, about Inter-Miami and what they have done, but where their uh, areas of concern might lie. Uh, You wrote that for MLSsoccer.com. You made a point in there about Messi's absence during the international window. How much do you think that is going to hurt uh, Inter-Miami with Messi missing, I believe, three games, said Tata Martino? Yeah, that, that's what Tata said. And where exactly those games are coming, we don't really know yet, given the timing of different international breaks. But I assume Tata knows what he's talking about. I, I think it will very severely hurt into Miami. You think about this, this squad and where they've strengthened. Into Miami strengthened in the middle of the back line. They have quality depth for the most part in that part of the field. Drake Callender is an excellent goalkeeper and he, he can anchor this team in the back. They brought in between the youth academy system and going out and signing Diego Gomez a number of young central midfielders that can help give Busquets cover and cover for his absence, even though you're going to take a hit. They have two strikers that can be starting caliber, if not more than that, in Leo Campana and Joseph Martinez. The one area where Inter-Miami are shallow is out wide. They bring in Facundo Farias, who started on the wing in their game over the weekend against the New York Red Bulls. And they have Robert Taylor, who is moonlighting as a, as a wing back in that game. And then it's Messi. And after that, you're, you're looking to Robbie Robinson, who is not a very good MLS player and is certainly not a very good wide player in Major League Soccer. So between the fact that they're losing Messi and Messi is Messi, he's one of one, and the fact that he's also happens, he also happens to be the player in their weakest position group, yeah, I think that's going to hurt. The margins are not invisible for Miami as they try to march towards the playoffs, but they probably need about 23 points from 11 games as the regular season ends. If Messi is only going to be around for eight of those, you also have a U.S. Open Cup final in there somewhere. You're going to have to do some of this without Messi. And the the question for Miami then is, is the core players outside of Messi and, and maybe Busquets good enough to get that job done and pick up at least points, if not wins, when he's not in the team? And the earlier returns are good. Thinking about over the weekend, they're up 1-0 before Messi steps on the field against the Red Bulls. 
but I am I'm less optimistic about what that looks like. But I'm I'm also not ruling it out either. And Goss, where are you on Miami making the playoffs? I think I mean the odds are obviously against it, and so I would take that field because I think that's the same. I don't believe I asked you what the odds are, yeah. sir. Uh, so my assumption would be they miss. And I, I think to what Joe said, I also you add in with the Open Cup with Argentina and with the way their schedule is because of backloaded games. Like if anything happens, if Messi picks up a knock and he's out a week, that's two games because of the way their schedule is. And as Joe just laid out, they can't afford two games. Um, I do think in part of this whole conversation, which is tough, is like, a lot of people, I think, fail to acknowledge this was not a complete roster before this summer, and it is now a complete roster. That's not just talking about Messi and Busquets. Like Joe mentioned, like they signed all these other players, which were salary cap mechanisms they left open until they knew what happened with Messi. That's why the team is so much better. It's not just because of him, but there is a, a, a lack of creativity in the team. And you're asking those all those players to gel on the fly. And I think Messi and Busquets cover up a lot of those cracks because of how special they are. And I think you saw on Saturday those cracks exposed of, I don't know that they were going to lose to the Red Bulls, but I don't know that they were going to win that game if Messi and Busquets were unavailable to them. So I just think when you look at the rest of the season, when you talk about travel and MLS, when you talk about fixture congestion for them, you add in the Open Cup, uh, Open Cup final, you add in not just Messi with international games, right? You're talking about is Drake Callender coming to the U.S.? Is Joseph Martinez going to Venezuela? Is Leo Campana going to Ecuador? Is uh, Robert Taylor going to Finland? So you're adding all of that. I, I think the odds are stacked against them, and I my assumption would be they don't make it, but I won't be shocked if they do. And what will be funny is it will go from the last week of will Miami make the playoffs to the next week of are they MLS Cup favorites? Are we going to, uh, in between there, are we going to find out that Inter-Miami hired a lawyer to go through and find like the esoteric law in MLS about how you can petition to not have to play games if you're missing a certain percentage of your roster? Like, I feel like if there were one team that was going to somehow not have to play games during the international window, it's Inter-Miami finding a way to make that happen. I thought uh, so it was going to be that they'd move a home game to Newell's Old Boys Stadium. And just make everyone fly to Argentina, have Messi <laughs> pop in between international just, <laughs> World Cup qualifiers. Wherever Messi is, that's where we're playing our game. Everybody take note. Home and, is uh, where you make it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gas up your plane. Uh, well, John Herdman is sort of making a new home uh, in that he has left Canada to stay in Canada, uh, taking over uh, Toronto in Major League Soccer. Joe, this is a situation where we were going to record and do whose stock is, is up and whose stock is down after the weekend. I know you were somewhat down on Toronto. Does this news change that at all? Does it change the reason why we're no longer doing stock up, stock down? No, th this news is why I initially had Toronto in the stock down category in the first place. So we've gone away from that format. But yeah, to get it out there up front, I'm not high on this hire for Toronto. I'm not high on this decision for John Herdman. We'll talk about what this means for Canada and, and some of those aspects in a minute. But really, John Herdman has been with Canada Soccer for a long time. 48 years old right now, has been with Canada Soccer since 2011. He's never been a club coach before. He's coached the New Zealand women's national team. He's coached the Canadian women's national team. And he went from that job straight to coaching the Canadian men's national team. And that is what concerns me the most about this move, both for him and his future in Toronto. This is a big job and is a, a probably a better job for his future 
than sticking around for Canada for one more cycle. So I understand the motivation behind it for Herdman. I understand as well the appeal for, for Toronto to get the guy that just was leading your team to a World Cup is is notable, right? This is, this is big and it's understandable in a lot of ways. Herdman did a lot of good things with Canada in a difficult situation. We did a whole big thing episode about what on earth is going on with Canada soccer. The long and short of it, they signed a bad business deal, they have no money, and that has caused a lot of friction in a lot of different parts of that organization and the things that extend out from that organization. But this Toronto environment is different and potentially even more chaotic and unstable than what was happening with Canada soccer, which is hard to believe. Toronto haven't won an MLS game since May 27th. Guys, May 27th was a long time ago. May 27th yeah. was three months ago. Like they've been 11 straight games in MLS without a win and eight straight losses in the regular season now for Toronto FC. They fired Bob Bradley back in June. We talked about that. They promoted Jason Hernandez from assistant GM to GM once Bob Bradley left. That also happened back in June. He's new to that role, even if he's not new to the organization. Bill Manning is still stirring the pot. And we talked about Bill Manning plenty when all that Bob Bradley news was going down. This is not a good environment for a new to club soccer coach to come into. Herdman might do a good job and all of this might prove irrelevant, but I think it is inarguable that this is unstable and not a very effective place to come in and get your first taste of you know, relatively high level, high stakes because Toronto take themselves seriously as one of the top teams in Major League Soccer. It's not gonna be a comfortable, easygoing environment for John Herdman to enter. And I don't know that I have a lot of faith in his ability to help turn this project around. Gosh, where are you on this one? Because I think on the surface, when I saw this, I thought like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really good hire by Toronto. Uh, and if I had given it maybe any level of thought, uh, uh, maybe that would have changed. But listening to Joe, it does have me much more sour now on this one. Yeah, I lean further on Joe's side than okay. your initial reaction. I would add one of the big worrying signs is more is wrong with this club than just the coach. And hiring a new coach right now feels like everything else is still in place, a.k.a. Bill Manning's the big problem as president and head of sporting and head of business and everything. Hiring a coach at this point in a season without having any change in the front office and any change above that in management means the same people are making the decision. So like as good a coach as John Herdman could possibly be, the I think the raw at the core of TFC has not changed, shown by the fact that right now they're making this move, they're making this signing, and now John Herdman is a Bill Manning and Jason Hernandez hiring. So those two people are clearly safe and in place. I think John Herdman has had some success at Canada Soccer being a bit of a CEO of his own thing, building staffs, uh, staffs that have been successful, um, being able to recruit players. Like, he's done more than just coach the team successfully, which gives some hope that maybe he comes in as a big name and is able to take over a level of the sporting side for Toronto and be able to have more influence than just being a coach and asking for players and being a part of the discussions. Your hope would be he could be a little bit more than that, and he's been around long enough to assess TFC from the outside, but through Canadian soccer eyes and say, here's what I think's going right, and here's what I think's going wrong. There's only three first division professional men's soccer teams in Canada. I guarantee you John Herman has spent a lot of the last five, six years thinking about Vancouver Whitecaps, Montreal, CF, and then Impact, or Impact and then CF, and TFC. Like, that's a part of his life. So I wouldn't be shocked if he had some good ideas. But to what Joe said, 
Canada men's national team and the women's national team before them were not teams that were uh, punched above their weight because of their tactical acumen. A lot of it is rah-rah. A lot of it is energy and spirit. And a lot of that stuff is stuff TFC needs fixed. Can John Herdman get Lorenzo Insigne and uh, Federico Bernadeschi to do that? I don't know. Um, and if that's not the case, I don't know where John Herdman's sort of soccer background leans on after that. AKA when you see someone take a job like this, they then go and get their players. I don't know who John Herdman's players are in this scenario. I don't know what his knowledge base is where it's like, oh, people don't know, but you know, I'm from Panama. Here are the five best Panamanian players no one knows about. I bring them in. That's my advantage. I don't know that John Herdman has any of that specifically, um, but he is probably the third biggest name in Canadian soccer right now behind Sinclair and Davies. So you could understand from a TFC point of view of like, he's going to draw eyeballs. He's going to change the conversation around their club, at least in the short term. He'll change the conversation. How much do you think he'll actually change the team? What do you think their expectations are bringing him in? We, the second secondary window is closed. You can still register players if they're, what, uh, free it, agents? It's not or really going to be anything this year. The rumor is he's going to take over like October 1st or 4th. Okay. So he's going to manage wow. three games. The season's over. Like, he's not a part of this season. I think that's the, like, take your time to close things down at the national team. Take your time to you know, do the classic, like sit upstairs and watch a game, but not be the manager. So you don't get charged with the loss and sort of start building the culture and, and some of the structure in the club that you want, but this is for the off season. And in terms of what he's going to do, I have no idea. I do not know if the belief is that Insigne and Bernadeschi can be part of a winning team or if they have to find a way to get off those two players. Yeah. And some of my, some of my general negativity about this hire is also just tied to how chaotic Toronto are right now. And I talked about that a bit in my opening, but you know, it feels to me like the manager decision is maybe the fifth most important decision that this club has to make between now and the start of next season. They have to figure out what to do with Bernadeschi and Insigne. Those are, are probably one a and one B on that list. And then they also ideally have to build out a club. Like that was the discussion that we had back when this Bob Bradley firing was announced in June is Bill Manning's got his fingers in too many pots, right? That's the reporting. That's the, that's what's being discussed in and around Toronto FC. And that doesn't change just because John Herdman is here, right? Like they had this, they had Bob Bradley as a coach. They've had coaches before. The reality is this is not the, the biggest impactful thing. The most impactful thing that this club can do to turn things around. And so it still feels like when I when I think about this Herdman to Toronto agreement, it feels like this is step one of what needs to be a 20-step overhaul for a club as they head into next season. And the reality is there's not gonna be enough time to do all of that. One, The other thing that I, I'm just not sure of about Herdman as a coach, right? Forget Toronto, forget wherever. He takes a new job after Canada. Doesn't matter what the team is. Goss, you kind of mentioned some of this. Herdman's, Herdman's thing as a coach, his, his biggest value proposition, it seems to me, is galvanizing a group, like really giving them energy and helping them feel motivated to go out there and, and give it all. And that has value, right? That has a lot of value as a manager. That's an important skill. You know, you've got people like Nagelsmann going out and saying that coaching is 80% people and 20% tactics, right? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I think about John Herdman and wonder like what his tactical approach actually is. With Canada, they were generally the antagonists. They sat back a little bit deeper. Is that his choice or is that because of the player pool that he had and thinking about the best ways to take down the United States and Mexico? Even though Herdman has been a coach for a long time 
and I have some idea of how he wants to play, it still feels like there are more questions than answers about how his style or what his style is and how it will translate to an environment where you're in and around a team every day where there's a chance that your persona as an energetic, kind of charismatic guy that by reports from Josh Cloak and, and others alienated the star of Canada men's soccer and Alfonso Davies and the relationship had been pretty well fractured by the point uh, of the Nations League. Like now you're around your stars and Toronto will have stars, whether it's the Italians or, or some other players next year. Now you're around those every day and all of a sudden it starts to feel like, well, maybe maybe there are more questions and answers even with the coaching situation here. All this does is make me annoyed with the Canadian Federation even more than I already was. To have the men's team looking as strong as they looked, as talented as they looked, and then to underfund them, to make it so you couldn't even buy like their new shirt uh, heading into the World Cup, to have the women's team as historically strong as they've been, but then to not fund them, to make them kind of struggle, and now we saw what happened at the World Cup. And then to have John Herdman sort of see this situation in Toronto as, yeah, that seems like more fun than what's going on in Canada. Why not? It, it all bad. says uh, that we should all be very frustrated with the Canadian FA. Uh, let's hope for changes there at some point in the near future. CSA. Come on, soccer. It's not football. My mistake. My mistake. The CSA. And then wasn't it like the Canadian soccer business? Yeah, wasn't CSB. that the other one? CSB. Wow. Great names, guys. Great names. It's a re- uh, it's a great way to teach your infant children the alphabet via the Canadian soccer associations <laughs> that have failed both their men's and women's national teams over the years. Okay, so, so you're finding doing positives. that? I, 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 I thought that's what you were doing with Reverie, personally. Do you know you're a CSA? <laughs> CSB. She just, she just quietly turns and walks out of the room whenever I try to do that, which is, I think, fair. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with a few more uh, teams to discuss and then some listener questions back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Welcome back. Uh, Joe, uh, our friend Adam Snavely used to do the Premier League uh, panic rankings for the Athletic. I miss those so much. I miss those like on a weekly basis. Continue. Uh, And they were incredibly poetic and lyrical. I'm going to ask you to do all of those right now. No, what I will ask you is if we're talking about MLS teams, if we did a panic ranking or a vulnerability ranking uh, of all MLS teams, I'm guessing Toronto would be near the top. Are there other teams, though, that you would say are near the top for panicking or maybe should be panicking or looking particularly vulnerable right now? Yeah, there's there's a host, as there always are in any league around no. the world. But one of the ones that pops to mind for me after the weekend is the New York Red Bulls. This weekend, they play into Miami. They lose 2-0 at home. There's no shame in losing to this Inter-Miami team. That's something that nine different teams have done at this point. So uh, that's not a big surprise. But uh, I think there is a lot of shame in how basically everything is going around the Red Bulls. And I'm, I'm very eager to hear Goss's perspective because he's been in around that club infinitely more than I have. So there's there's that piece of it. But this weekend was a reminder for me, for me about how bleak the situation has become for the New York Red Bulls. First of all, on the field, they're not getting results this year. They're 11th in the Eastern Conference, but they're struggling in, in more ways than that, right? They're struggling to be something, right? There are no stars in this team. They're not a feeder club up the Red Bull ladder like we all kind of assume they would be or like an outsider would assume, in thinking about the Red Bull football group, like that they're not a feeder. They're not providing players to those clubs. And the question for me is like, what what is this club right now? Their general manager said recently that, quote, next year we're going to make a significant investment into our roster to make sure that we can compete at the highest level in MLS consistently. That would be great because this team needs to be something. They've tried to spend a little bit recently, Dante Vanzier. That signing has not worked out. Uh, they spent on Patrick Lamala. They spent on Luquinas. All those players have been busts in Major League Soccer uh, or or were and are no longer in Major League Soccer. They're just not relevant. And the reason why this sort of crystallized for me over the weekend was they're playing into Miami, the team that is single-handedly capable of capturing basically any team's market over a a given evening or over a given week leading up to a game. And it really felt like more than any team that they've played so far, that happened with the Red Bulls. And it wasn't about the New York Red Bulls playing a soccer game against a team coming into their home turf. It it felt to me as an outsider, and I'm sure many Red Bull fans felt differently, but as an outsider, it felt like, wow, this is a spectacle about Inter-Miami, not at all about the team that's playing at home. And I think that speaks to how irrelevant really the Red Bulls have been in their market, even when they're having success. To be honest, that's not enough in New York to really capture that as, as a team where there's another major league soccer team in your market, and there are so many other things for people to care about. It's just frustrating right now. I think to be a, a, a New York Red Bulls fan, it would be a frustrating experience. It's frustrating as an outsider to think about all the potential that this club should have. And maybe things change next year. Like like Mark de Grandpre said, maybe they don't. Either way, things are are bleak and irritating right now for the Red Bulls. Yeah, I just had uh, three friends decide to buy season tickets to the Red Bulls together. I'm going to assume part of, part of that was with an eye towards getting to watch Lionel Messi play. Uh, but I did... I did have to sort of bite my tongue on that one because they were all very excited and like, yeah, we're going to go see games. It's going to be great. It's going to be really fun. And they're a really fun club. And I was like, yeah, I've heard differently, but sure, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Do they uh, live in New Jersey? Uh, yes, I believe two of them do. And then one of them is moving to Brooklyn. So there you go. Wow, bienvenidos. Welcome to Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, Gus, if, if you don't have many thoughts on the Red Bulls, are there any teams that you would put near the top of the panic rankings? No, I would say I agree with everything Joe okay. said. So, and, and I think that's the starting base of the club is if you don't take yourself seriously, how can other people? And I think that's one of the things for me that some of the newer clubs in Major League Soccer have done of like, 
they're not pitching themselves as a minor league baseball team. They're not pitching themselves as this alternate thing you could do some days. They take themselves seriously as a professional sports team that's trying to fight for titles and be as good as they can be. And I think fans then react to that. And in the New York market, that has not been the case. And it was not the case, I think, for a lot of MLS 1.0 teams outside of the Galaxy and DC United. And I think it's been a struggle for a lot of MLS 1.0 teams to get there. Red Bulls being one of them. You add in some of the probably mistakes they made of choosing where to put the stadium and when. But I think it became clear when Jesse Mars left of like, if they weren't going to invest and take it to another level with him and the success they had, there's no case that they're going to do it since then. And Van Zier was a, a big time signing for them, but one move is not enough. Look at what Inter Miami did. They signed Messi, then they signed six more players over the course of the window that broke multiple transfer records in different directions, in different ways, right? Like Avi Les is a transfer record. Not a name that not a single person who paid $500 to $1,200 to go see Messi on Saturday could tell you. They don't know who he is. They don't know where he played. They don't know what he does. But they spent millions of dollars to bring him in. And, and those are things that the Red Bulls have chosen not to do. And I don't know that they can really compete at the level they had in the past in the league if they continue not to do that. Um, the two clubs I would throw in there in that conversation, one would be Portland. I don't think it was a mistake to part ways with Gio Savarese. I think he had sort of reached his limit, but I don't know what that club is. And I don't know what direction they're leaning in. I don't know what you know their strength is outside of a great fan base and a great atmosphere. I think you talk to players, you talk to people around the sport, like people want to go and be there. People want to be in front of that, that crowd 16 to 18 times a year. Like that's unquestionable, but they had leaned pretty heavily into a South American based roster under Gio Savarese. Does that mean they have to bring in a coach who connects with that? Is, is Ned Grabovoy the one calling the shots? Is it Merritt Paulson again? Is he heavily involved? Should he be heavily involved? Should he still own the team? There's a lot of question marks around that as well. And so I think Gio Savarese was sort of a face to things that's gone. And then they go and lose to Vancouver at home in what may have killed their playoff hopes for the season. So if they don't make the postseason the year they let Savarese go, I don't know what the the coaching search looks like and where they land um, after this. But I, I think that's a club that has big question marks around them. The other obvious ones are DC United and Chicago because they both lost. They both suck. They're not going to make the playoffs. They've both spent a decent amount of money to not make the playoffs, and I don't know how it ends. It does feel, uh, yes, admittedly bleak for Chicago and D.C. It also feels very odd for Portland to be in the position they're in, very much self-inflicted by Merritt Paulson and some of the decisions they made with their staff and their front office. But Portland was always a team that it felt like you could point to as like the fan base loves the team, loves like like maybe doesn't love ownership, but is appreciative of ownership's passion and enthusiasm and the, and the financing and everything else. And now I, I know people who have not been season ticket holders that previously were because of everything happening with ownership and uh, the front office uh, and the connection to the thorns as well. So it, it just feels to me like a strange situation where it's a club that I think of as being very strong and stable, yeah. uh, not being that at present. Well, and, and it, it does go back even further than that. I think some of the issues for Portland on the sporting side, t- taken mm-hmm. and, and accepted on all the ownership comments that you guys have both made. But on the sporting side, they've made runs in the playoffs, and they have made the playoffs. But it, uh, Portland fans aren't going to like this. To me, the, the warning signs have been there for years now. You think about how this roster's been constructed, relying on 
aging midfielders in Sebastian Blanco, who's now no longer really a key player for this team, Diego Chara, and, and frankly missing on a lot of their international signings. Jimmy Chara has not been a very productive winger in Major League Soccer. Every year it feels like they end up relying on Dairon Espria, which is not a situation that you would want if you have hopes to be a top three team in your conference year after year, which is what Portland should hope for. Right? They've missed on far too many signings. They've been too slow to transition the roster. They have not had a style of play under Gio Savarese. And so in some ways, I think it was the right thing to do to move on from Savarese. And I've talked about this before. Ryan and I, I think, talked about it on last week's episode, last week's Tuesday show. And, and that's, that's fine. I think that's probably the right thing to do. But it can't be the last thing. Like, if, if this is the only change Portland makes, unless you're going out and getting a Wilford Nance, who I think is maybe the only... I'll say this, he is in a class of his own in terms of, as a manager, an ability to impact a team in Major League Soccer. Unless you're going out and getting someone of that caliber, and that's really, really hard to do, it, it's not an overnight fix. It's not a one-off season fix for the Timbers, and all of a sudden they're back to being the class of the West. There have been problems for years, even in the midst of MLS Cup runs, and there are now many things that need to be addressed to return them to a team or, or, or to make them into a team that is worthy of, of kind of the lore that they are naturally and understandably associated with in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I agree with Joe in that this is not a club that has built long-term projects with clear vision. They've been very win-now, which is in its own way unique in MLS. Most teams in MLS are actually building longer term, even when you look at LAFC and Philly in MLS Cup last year. LAFC flipped their entire roster in the summer. And a lot of that was like, Mamadou Fall was a starter, but we think he can be sold if we send him on loan to Spain. Um, they brought in Bale and Teo, but like they were on short-term on short-term contracts because like Buanga was going to be the face of the team going forward. So even teams at the highest level of success have kind of thought more long-term. Portland have never done that. One of the issues for Portland in that is that they don't have a transfer kitty built up. Like LAFC can do those things because LAFC have sold and moved so many players that they have sort of this money that operates to bring players in, knowing that they can also sell later, like a Brian Rodriguez. Portland has never operated in that space, but they have brought in players in their prime for win now moments that a lot of MLS teams won't spend money on. It's why it's always felt like they have a shot when they make the playoffs. But they haven't built longer term, and that's partially because they refuse to invest and properly connect with their academy, which part of that is on Gio Savarese. A lot of that is on ownership and the club. And the complaint of like geography is not a real one in America or Canada. There's enough players everywhere. You can't say, well, we're in a bad market. We're not going to find players. That's been a massive one for them, but also the way they've gone about you know, acquiring players. And I think that's leaned on the managers they've picked, which is like Caleb Porter wants to win tomorrow and Gio Savarese wants to win tomorrow. Those are their two biggest focuses. That zag is not actually the worst thing in the world if the entire league is going in the other direction. You just got to hit. You have no room for error because you're not going to be able to flip a Jimmy Chara for the number you paid if he doesn't play well. And you haven't built any money up in selling a Petrovic to Chelsea for $17 million or a Gaga Slonina, even though Chicago's made its own mistakes, to then bring in another player. And that's sort of where Portland has sat itself. Um, it, they were revolutionary for a little while when they came into the league. The league has shifted massively since then. They haven't really shifted with it. Um, so you either need to hit bat a thousand with what they do or find a new way to go about building your roster. That's really fascinating. 
that's and well phrased. I like that idea that they were revolutionary when they came in, but they haven't really evolved since then. Uh, let's stay in the Pacific Northwest for a moment. Uh, we had a question from Bobby Drexler. Uh, guys, an honest question. Is it time for the Sounders to move on from coach Brian Schmetzer? I thought uh, I'd be in the, I might be in the minority, excuse me, but I think it's time for a change after this season. I know they were plagued with injuries last year, but even this season when they're healthy, they look like they have, uh, they don't look like they have any tactical bite whatsoever. Is it personnel or the coaching? What say you? How say you, Joe Lowry? I, I think, is this a Taylor Rockwell submitted question? Because you do phrase the end of your question sometimes as, as what say you or how say you. I, I think how Bobby say you, Drexler, this is what say you. So I, that's the difference. Yeah, it feels like totally, feels totally like a, wildly different. Mm, okay. <laughs> I, I, here's, here's why you know it's not for me is because I, having like casually paid, paid attention to Seattle, kind of love Brian Schmetzer. I think I, I, that tends to put me in the minority when it comes to some of my co-hosts. But I think a lot of that has to do with the way he conducted his uh, MLS Cup winning press conference, uh, downing a tall boy before refusing to answer any questions. Power will loom large in my head for a while. I enjoyed that Power immensely. Uh, it sounds like Bobby Drexler is enjoying him less immensely these days, even if that was a power move, Joe. It does, and there are understandable reasons for that, right? The Sounders are not in a good place right now. They have three wins in their last 14 MLS games. They're still doing fine in the West because the rest is the West is hot garbage this year, and teams keep tripping over themselves, and the Eastern Conference is the conference that's really good and is probably going to have the MLS Cup winner, and the West is, is really not so good. But the Sounders are, are still doing fine relative to the competition, even if the gap is closer than they'd want it to be. Bobby mentions in the question, like the Sounders lacking a tactical, any, any sort of tactical bite, right? That's how that's how they phrase it. To be honest, the Sounders have never had any sort of tactical bite. Like that's not been their thing. They're not coming out to beat you with a really well, well-crafted, like carefully planned game plan. Brian Schmetcher is is not a coach who's going to instill, install, excuse me, a super detailed free-flowing style into his team. So if that's what you're looking for, you're probably never going to be satisfied with what Schmetzer does. But to be honest, I, I kind of got to this earlier with Nancé being a coach in a, in a class of his own right now. There aren't many coaches in MLS who fit that bill of being able to install a really detailed, successful, effective, savvy tactical system. What's made things work so well in Seattle is that they've identified and implemented talent better than 95% of the league, right? That's what's been the, their thing, right? And, and, and Brian Smetzer then, in his role as manager, has established a logical and mostly uncomplicated framework for those players to come in and thrive, and they can work together, and the players, out of a basic structure, can then go out there and find solution. I'm not saying Schmetzer doesn't have tactical ideas. He knows more about soccer than I will ever learn, but it's not these super complicated galaxy brain things. The structure is there, the talent is there, and there haven't been many MLS teams that can say that over the last however long, right? They're not perfect, but the recipe has worked really, really well. The thing that I think needs to change for Seattle, less on the coaching side, is the roster. The roster is just real old. It's, it's either real old or real young. And the academy kids really haven't found their groove yet. And the veterans are starting to look their age. Raul Ruiz Diaz is 33. Abares is 32. Ladero is 34. Rusnak is 29. Yaimar is 31. Stefan Fry is 37. That's the problem. And for me, that's where I start over this offseason is you need to go out and find probably four starting caliber players and a couple of those players probably need to be stars to replace the players that have been stars and maybe aren't anymore or at least aren't available enough to be considered game changers on a week in and week out kind of basis that's where you start in this offseason and if the transition process doesn't go smoothly there then maybe you think about moving this team into a new era in multiple ways joe i agree with a lot of what you said now on the roster side which i think is massive do you rebuild 
with Brian Schmetzer. And I think that's where the timing becomes a bit of an issue is if you are going to change out basically what you just named, which is eight jerseys that are going to go up in the rafters and be there forever and have built this club that Brian Schmetzer has had so much success with. Are you going to try and start over again with him as manager? Well, I think I would disagree with the the premise of that question. Everybody loves it when people say that, right? Uh, I don't think you're rebuilding in this offseason. Even though I just listed all of those players, not all of them will go. It could simply look like a transition of roles, right? And even if some go, not uh, not all of them will, right? So the thing that the Sounders have done really well is they have gone out and found or re-signed key players that are just under that age group. Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan, I didn't name them in that list. They're both 28, right? And they've been recently signed to longer-term contracts extensions. Jackson Reagan is 24. Like, there are pieces. Leo Chu is maybe not all the way there, but is a, a solid MLS attacker at this point. Like, those players can help usher in a new generation. So you're not getting rid of everyone. I would keep Schmetzer to go through what I would think of. I know this is kind of a cliche when people don't want to call it a rebuild, but I would call it a retooling for Seattle, truly. I think that's what it is. It's not a tear it down and start over. It's a let's see if we can evolve. And Schmetzer has had to do that before. He's ushered this team. I didn't even mention Jao Paulo as one of the older players. He's in that group as well. Like, I, I think Seattle will try to usher in a new era, but it will not be an entirely new era. And I would leave Schmetzer in that role, at least for next season. Okay, I think that's fair. I disagree on the roster construction of they have retooled along the way. If Lodero, Rui Diaz are not on this team, if Jao Paulo is not on this team, if Stefan Fry retires, that's a rebuild. And while I agree that Christian Roldan, hopefully healthy, Alex Roldan, Jordan Morris, Jackson Reagan can be a large part of the next team, like a rebuild doesn't mean it's going to take Seattle five years to be competitive again. I do think it will be a rebuild. One thing to think about in all of this is Preki and Freddy Juarez as assistants, I think are both going to be guys that get interviews for other head coaching jobs this offseason. I would be shocked if Freddy Juarez didn't get an interview at Portland specifically, where Ned Grabovoy is going to be running the interviews, who knows him from his RSL days and has been a head coach in MLS already himself. So that might force Seattle's hand a little bit of going to Brian Schmetzer and saying like, what's your timeline? Because this is what we're working with. Do we match up together? And I wouldn't be shocked if Brian Schmetzer says, I've done this for eight years. Like, maybe I'm done. I won CCL. I won MLS Cups. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he said, yeah, I'm good to to either step aside or step into the front office, whatever happens. Um, It's a club that's obviously undergone a decent amount of change in the front office and Chris Henderson leaving to go become GM in Miami and then Garth Lagerwey leaving to take over in Atlanta. So you also have people who maybe haven't picked these people under them who want to do that. So I wouldn't be shocked if Seattle did make that change. Um, The one thing that stands out to me is like, we just talked about Toronto. We talked about Portland. There aren't obvious next people. So the other piece is if you don't think anyone else is better than Brian Schmetzer, why are you going to, why are you going to rush? And I don't think there's an obvious name out there that's moving around MLS circles. I don't think Jesse Marsh is going to become coach of the Seattle Sounders I mean, tomorrow. Vlatko needs a gig. He's lived in Seattle before. Why not? Let's make it happen. 
help. Vlaco might get a job in Seattle. It just might be on the other side if Laura Harvey's going to U.S. soccer. Agreed on that, Joe. Did you just quietly say help? I, on behalf of Seattle fans, yes, I did. 100%. <laughs> All right. Let's take uh, one more break for Joe to find some help, and then we'll come back with a few more questions. Back soon. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Two more listener questions for you. Joe, coming to you first for this one from Wendell G. Nico Gioacchini got eight caps and scored three goals while doing nothing in the French second division. Now he's joint top scorer among Americans in Major League Soccer. Should he get a look in one of these upcoming camps, provided they aren't exclusively for the current A squad of the USMNT? Sure. Why not? That's kind All of right. my thought on this question. So Answered I give, and on we go. I want to give a little background on Joe Akini first. I know a lot of folks will know who he is, but I'm guessing there are a lot of folks that that don't know much about him or haven't kept up with him this season. Joe Akini's been solid this year, really his first breakout year as a pro. Nine goals in open play. That's one behind Ferreira for the USMNT's top open play goal scorer in Major League Soccer. Uh, he's from Missouri. He moved to France at age 15, played in the Paris FC and Cannes Systems, then Montpellier. Then Orlando City signed him in 2022, and then his current stop, St. Louis City, 
pick him up in the expansion draft leading into this year for them. He's been a great pickup. Like that, that has proven to be an excellent addition, especially with Jao Klaus's injury issues, which have been a major theme for St. Louis City this year. He's got a great work rate. Joe Akini, good physically, can play back to goal fairly well, likes to go direct, or at least he's done well in a system that asks him to do that. He's played as the target striker or as a second forward this year for Bradley Carnell in a, in a team that's used almost exclusively two striker shapes or, or, you know, the underneath player is basically functioning as a second forward. So I think even with all that said, and, and he does some things well, I think we're probably another even better season away from him cracking a a non-January camp. Like, I think he needs to come out and score 15, 18 goals in a season for, for him to really be in any meaningful conversations around the U.S. men's national team, but I mean, could he make a January camp? Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. Like, I you you can kind of pick some names out of a hat when it comes to MLS players. You know, Joaquin is not a journeyman at this point; he's still young-ish. But maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. I don't think it it's something that's going to keep anybody other than maybe Joaquin, understandably so, up at night. I I think that would be fine. But if it doesn't happen, I'm also fine with that. Yeah, in my opinion, he feels like a definitive January camp. You had a great season in MLS. Here's your reward with this call-up, and then we'll see what you do there. Maybe if he scores a goal or two in those friendlies, then he stays around the camp. We've seen that happen previously. But I agree, Joe. Otherwise, I think we're talking about a player who needs that extra season. Uh, and to the the subtext of Wendell's question, I, I think we see players get call-ups when they're scoring in like uh, European second divisions or like less heralded European leagues, because primarily I think we don't get to see them that often. And I think coaches want the opportunity to bring them into camp to see what they can do, to see how they fit, to see how they vibe, and then to see what the next steps are going to be. And so I feel like Joaquini got that opportunity, did okay, but didn't really like raise himself head and shoulders above other uh, competition at the number nine spot. Now has made this move to MLS, where I think we can see much more of him. We we do see much more of him, and we're seeing him score goals. I agree with you. I think it has to then be consistent goal scoring uh, and maybe larger numbers to then uh, boost him into that conversation about being in and around the A slash B team. But I think a January camp uh, call up and a few appearances there feels like uh, feels like worthy praise for a strong season. Uh, Goss, any. Any disagreement from you? No, I would say in the question, one of the things you have to remember is I believe Joe Acchini's first two call-ups were in Europe. It was mm-hmm. during COVID, but even if it's not COVID, for games in Europe, and so often they, the national team will pull fully sort of local players for that. So he probably got an opportunity before he deserved it. And then if you come in and, and you're a part of training and the coaching staff likes you, you get along with the team, then you get called into a Gold Cup, which wasn't an A-team that was called into that. So sometimes you have to remember it's circumstance. Um, But the core of what the question is, is the core of everything we've all had to bash our head against the wall about for two to 12 years of like, Jesus Ferreira scoring goals in MLS equal to Josh Sargent not scoring goals in Europe. Europe is soccer. And like, that's sort of that debate that always happens. And when players end up on European clubs, there is normally a level of like, oh, they must be good. I think we've now had enough history of players then not making it coming back to MLS, not making it here to accept that that's not always true, but you don't know which ones it's true about and which ones it isn't. So often a coaching staff where they don't have a ton of unknowns will sort of take a risk on a player and say, do you know, did we miss them in the last 10 years? Obviously this ex European scout and coaching staff thought they were good. Maybe we were wrong. Joe, uh, Aside from continuing to score goals, 
Uh, if he gets that January camp call up, if it goes okay, and then we see him go back to Major League Soccer, what are the other areas you think would be ideal for him to develop to better fit into what Greg Berhalter wants his number nines to be or do? It's hard because some of that's outside of his control. Yeah. I talked about this with Brandon Vasquez. The the system that St. Louis play in, in Cincinnati mm-hmm. to a two. lesser extent yeah. is so, so different. And so that's, that's hard for Joe Acchini and in a lot of ways puts him at a disadvantage. The things that he can still work on, though, getting even cleaner between the lines. You know, he, He's somebody who's played all across the front line throughout his career. It feels like this year he's finally become a central attacking player. But he's kind of a tweener in a lot of ways. He's not always the cleanest in those central spaces. He's not super lethal yet in between uh, the kind of hash marks inside the box, right? So I think in general, he just needs refining. And a lot of that's because he hasn't played a ton. Yeah, he's, he's a few years into his pro career, but he didn't play a ton in France. He didn't play a ton in Orlando. Like this is the year. This is the first year. And so I would I would hope that he'd be able to refine a lot of the different aspects of his game outside of you know the defensive work rate that he clearly has, the physicality that he has. But there's still a, a number of things that I think could be improved and would probably need to be if he's in any serious national team conversation between now and ever. Yeah, I, I, Joe's right about the system and it's one of the tough things for a lot of the American forwards in MLS of like, they don't play in teams that are similar to what Greg Berhalter sets up. Jesus Ferreira, you would argue is unique, obviously playing under Nico Estevez. They haven't been that good, but that also could be part of the issue. Um, But a lot of the U S attacking players don't play in systems that are similar. So it's hard to say what I see from Brandon Vasquez and Nicholas Joachini or Brian white. I will then see with the U S. And so you're starting to try and pull personalities and attributes that you think you can can work in um, and add on top of that for Joe Acchini, the list is only going to get longer of the guys he's chasing. So he has to jump, I think, a sizable amount in league play to then be able to say, I deserve the opportunity to be in training and on the field with them in national team play to show that I'm better. I mean, it took Brandon Vasquez, what, a year and a half? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, that makes me feel better uh, in terms of Joe Acchini being properly appreciated but then also having a ways to go and maybe not jumping to conclusions quite yet uh the suspiciously named gone darber has our final question of the day uh in your messy mania big thing episode which was the official title uh you talked about loosening roster rules to make the league engaging which is important but does that really make the impact mls needs as mentioned many times on the show most mls games aren't very consequential without the fear of relegation without adding promotion relegation to the league what can be done to make each game more meaningful Goss, why don't you get us started here? I love this. Go, Goss. Well, you could start with the obvious one, which is you could do a Klausura Apertura. Cut the season in half, make two playoffs. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has followed Liga MX consistently, but most managers get fired between five and seven games into the season because you always have a chance to make the playoffs. And if you don't, there are real consequences, Um, which, by the way, is one of the ways in which we all say MLS games don't matter, but there actually is a decent amount of turnover at manager spots, which would simulate that there's some level of pressure on managers to be successful. Uh, the big roster rule change that I think most people would want to see is just opening up how money can be spent. Right now, the league dictates a lot of the way money can be spent in Major League Soccer, and so you can't build rosters in unique ways, and so you end up getting... 18 teams that are all built the same way. And the question is who signed the best version of each player. And 
I don't think that's entertaining. I don't think that's individualized. I don't think that's as fun. And so I think if you had teams with different identities matching up against each other and sort of carrying that flag onto the field, I think fan bases identify with that. They're inspired by it. I think you saw a level of it when the Red Bulls really started under Jesse Marsh of like, I think Red Bull fans were connected to and inspired. And and that's the best that building's ever been to all the things we said negative of like in 2014, 15, 17, 16, 17, like they sold out Eastern Conference finals. They had crowds that were excited. Um, And I think that's one of the big things you could do just off the bat. Don't make teams spend money on three under 22 players two designated players and this allow a team to go out and sign four elite center backs. If they want, like let teams have different ways that they build their roster so that it can be a little bit more personalized and connected to what they are. How much difficulty do you think there would be? This is a a big murky question. Like how much difficulty will there be in changing some of those rules? Because in my mind, like the the rules have all been like sort of, oh, there was this loophole. So now we're changing this loophole. Oh, well, we haven't been able to spend in this way. So now we're adding this provision. And it feels like so many things are contingent upon other things. And so many things have been built to help like uh, expand the salary budget or expand yeah. who you can sign. But at the same time, you then have like things that are dependent on other things and and contractual obligations that are put in that you then would have to kind of re- rework. I guess what I'm asking is how difficult is it to sort of uh, edit the roster rules versus would you advocate for more of a just complete chuck everything out that exists in the salary budget at present and gam and tam and all that stuff and just sort of start anew or do you think it's about continuing to fine-tune Gus I think there's a decent amount of Charlie Day construction on this of like you got to burn the trash which goes here and moves here <laughs> and you burn the trash and it goes up and makes stars exactly know that. that's how science works exactly yeah. I'm, with so- you. I'm with you so, yes, I think there's a lot of like this rule was added to fix what was broken right. from that rule, which was added to fix what was broken from the other rule. I don't actually think a lot of it would be very hard to get rid of because it was all becoming it was all pushing teams in a direction more and more. And I think if you just stepped away from that, you could wipe it clean or not. I actually don't think it would be difficult to go from where we are to like you have eight million dollars to spend on a budget. You have two players you can sign who are outside of that that you know, hit the cap at X amount of dollars and you have X amount of dollars to spend on homegrowns. I don't actually think it would be that difficult to put that together. I think most people who work, you know, running teams would already understand what you're saying since it's their life. And, you know, they wake up and fall asleep to spreadsheets about rosters and stuff. Like, I don't think you would hit anyone with a curveball by being like, yeah, we're not going to force you to sign players in these buckets anymore. You can do whatever you want with that money. There would be some growing pains, but we just talked about a, a system that was built on fixing the problems of the previous rules. Those are growing pains. So I don't I think there would be less of that going forward. Yeah, I think there's lots of important discussions to be had in the roster rules discussion. That's really good talking on my end. But like to get to what Gon's actually asking here, I think there are other ways to make the league more interesting. And and I do think loosening the roster rules is a key part of that. Like that is if not where you start, like that's one of the absolute first things that you start to do to change Major League Soccer, to grab the casual fan and turn them into a diehard fan. Like to me, that's a no brainer, but guns talking, I'm having a hard time taking this seriously, but I mean, the question talks about like needing to make each game more meaningful. And that is a huge problem for Major League Soccer right now. It is mind blowing to me. I've said this before. And I will say it again. It is mind blowing to me that MLS would shift 
to letting 62% of the league into the playoffs this year. Not that that's an unheard of percentage for American sports. It's not, right? But the leagues that let in that chunk of teams to the postseason have the star power to make each and every one of those teams an engaging watch in the playoffs. There's a reason why the NBA playoffs are a huge spectacle. It's because every team has stars, right? They have reasons to tune in for a neutral and for the diehard fans of those teams to come in and watch those games. Major League Soccer absolutely does not have that star power. So right now, the issue for Major League Soccer, one of the biggest issues, is that most of their games just don't matter. Like, there aren't reasons to tune in for a casual fan to a game in June to watch the Colorado Rapids play Real Salt Lake. It just doesn't exist. So the challenge that MLS has to face is how do we make it, like the question asked, how do we make these games more meaningful so that they actually matter? Part of the way you can do this, and this is how most of the world does it, is that you incentivize regular season excellence and punish regular season failure with promotion and relegation. Unfortunately, we are not going to see that in Major League Soccer. I would love to see it. It's just not going to happen. I understand that makes me complicit in a show and, and I'm willing to accept those things. But like, you can get at a similar concept, rewarding excellence, punishing failure, in, a, in, in other ways, if not similar ways, in other ways that won't do the job quite as well, but will still promote more effort and quality in the largest chunk of the season, which is the regular season. Cut the playoff field back down. Make it harder for teams to say, well, we finished eighth, we finished ninth, like job done, fellas. Good work, enjoy the offseason, come back in next year, we're gonna do the same thing. Like don't make it possible, make it five. Make it five teams in each conference out of 30 or do something that's less than what you have now. That's one way. I, I think that's an imperfect solution to be honest, but I, I think it's better than what exists right now. The thing that I'm most intrigued by is increasing like player win bonuses across the league. And I don't know exactly the mechanics to make this happen, but you hear about former pros, you hear former pros saying, you know, oh, you know the last stretch of the regular season is coming, like this is when you turn it on because you know, like everybody else has kind of been coasting and so now everybody knows you gotta flip the switch and if you wanna make the playoffs, that's what you have to do. Like make it so that there are real reasons, financial reasons for these players to care about that game in June between Colorado and RSL. Like make, their re make it reasons, give reasons, I should say, for these players to really care about what's going on throughout the entire year, it's a huge problem. And I don't know the exact right solution. I think there's a bunch of things you could throw at the wall and probably they would all help. 2%, 3%, 4%, 5% in pro row would help all the way, most likely. But like that along with the roster rules, you need a better you need a better product and need a more meaningful one. And MLS right now lacks both of those things in a lot of different ways. I think it's an interesting idea, Joe. The, the thing you'd run up against, which you would need the owners to fork over money for is players are not going to see guaranteed money, right? Like what a C, what a union fights for in a CBA is guaranteed money. That's sort of the, the floor that they're working off of. So those bonuses would have to be an added addition right. to. Yes. 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 That would have, it would have to the be a minimums are 115,000. Now average players making 500, 600 K still. And there is a larger pool of bonus yeah. money that will be distributed. It's just like, you know, opening up so the ambitious owners can go out and spend the money that they want to. It's a recognition that we need to invest to make the quality of our league that we will benefit from if it goes and, and continues to grow or grows at a faster rate. It's a recognition that it's a necessary expenditure to make your investment into something more valuable. Yeah, it's going to cost in the short term, but all these things, right? It's easier for us to sit here and say, oh, man, all these teams should go out and spend more money to make a better league. Like, it's not my money. It's easy for me to say that. It's not my money that's going into this theoretical player win bonus structure. But I, I think it's you approach it similarly if you're an owner and say, yeah. wow, realistically, our games don't matter. How do we change that? This is a way to change that. Let's go out there and do it.
uh, on the playoff thing, I would say you don't need to take away playoff teams because you just add more teams to the league. If yep, 62% of the league make the playoffs at nine spots, if you just add 20 more teams, then it, the percentage goes down. Gus, do you want us to never headache. sleep? I'm really confused yeah, right. <laughs> about sort of like what your motivation is here. I don't understand. Well, it's just if you have Al-Hilal come in as an expansion team, you have them playing against Club America in the League's Cup playoff qualifier Campione Cup to qualify for the play-in game, that would really add a ton of incentive to being a better team. All right. Do we like, <laughs> meh, or hate this idea? Uh, Klausura, we have a whole season of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Then we have League's Cup mm-hmm. uh, after that. Then we have Apertura, uh, same thing. Season mm-hmm. playoffs, and then if you have two different teams uh, win the playoffs, then they play each other as your like grand final champion. So you get two different sets of playoffs plus the league's cup uh, plus a potential like big title challenge game. I like uh, it. Do, do we like that? Yes. Goss, Goss is all in a hundred percent. I've already I'm thought about it a lot, and I'm already committed to it. And I, Joe I, is. I'm going to assume also fully in. Joe, you don't even need to answer. No, Joe, go ahead. I like. I like it better than what we have now. By, by a lot, I think. I'm open to that. I just feel like an issue. And like, you know, Major League Soccer gets a, a decent amount of stick on this show because it feels like new things come and go all the time. Like a lot of folks made fun of League's Cup because it's something new. It's like, well, why do we need mm-hmm. this? I think MLS already has a lot of barriers to entry. And I worry that if you change the structure even yeah. more dramatically, that creates problems as you solve other problems. Like we talked about with the roster rules. I think it is worth the trade-off but it's not as seamless of a solution as I think yeah. you could probably go for while keeping the same structure and, and tweaking things within it. Can I tell you all the way I would like uh, ProRel to work? Because uh, I, I, I've thought about this. We've oh. answered this question many times. We have time for this now. Okay, interesting. <laughs> I'll give you my abbreviated <laughs> one because it's still a, it's still a, a two-season solution. Uh, but it's ba- and I don't think MLS would go for it. I agree. I think uh, ProRel with Major League Soccer is, is a non-starter, at least for the next like 20 years until they absolutely have to, if and when. But if we were going to do ProRel, I love the idea of, um, doing two different competitions. One of them is regional. So you play like the whatever, however many professional teams are in your area, uh, home and away. So like the Southeast would be the, like maybe DC United's in there, the Richmond kickers, uh, however many North Carolina teams there are all the way down, you play everybody there. And then that's one season. And then your top, like three teams from that then go to the, the top flight league competition in the second season. And then the, the next three go to the next one. And then you keep the rest at a regional level. So you're not breaking the banks of those smaller clubs, but at the same or perceived smaller clubs, but at the same time you allow for some teams who do want to kind of operate above their budget or try to make that run to do that. So you get the regional stuff, you get some regional rivalries, but then you also get that second competition that now feels very meaningful because it's the elite teams all playing against each other or the next most elite teams in the second division. That is how I would like to do it. That is so complicated. Uh, even just running through it. I'm, I'm sure that a, a person less familiar with soccer would have, Roughly 14 questions about that one immediately, or you just would just be like, tune oh, out it's like right. a Brazilian state championship. Paulista and combined with a Belgian <laughs> league setup fused into a second tournament setup. I think that's a pretty simple explanation to a non-soccer totally. fanatic. Totally, totally. Yeah. I watched Joe's eyes glaze over as we were having this conversation. <laughs> he was just thinking about your fantasy football roster in the middle. <laughs> pretty much. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> I may have sent these questions very late to Joe and, and Goss because I was doing 
my uh, my fantasy draft slash the NFL draft, as I call it, because it's the most important one. Actually, speaking of the draft, um, uh, not mine, I promise. So we we know that with like the NBA, the NFL, the the teams that finish bottom, the teams that are the worst in the regular season, usually or are more likely to get that first pick. Is there a way because in Major League Soccer? The draft, obviously, not as significant. Robbie Robinson, the aforementioned uh, number one pick, who we are maybe going to have to use if you're Inter-Miami, if forced to. Is there another way to make that bottom spot matter or like the teams that like the teams that finish bottom matter more other than promotion relegation? Like, is there a way to allow them to spend more or force them to spend more or subsidize their budget? It's it's on my list of things. I don't have an answer, but I have in in the list of ways to make the regular season more meaningful. What I wrote down was penalize the bottom fifth of the league somehow. And I have no understanding of how you would do that. And I don't think that will ever happen. But I don't think you reward them like you do in the NFL or the NBA or whatever. I think you, you punish them because theoretically, like there's an unlimited pool of players. Just go out, get better players, take this more seriously. Again, not my money. Easier for me to say that than, than it would be if it was my well, money. But it's on the list, Taylor. But Joe, Joe you could reward them in a way and pushing them to do that of having whatever revenue spending share, which is the bottom place team gets X thousands of millions, whatever dollars onto their roster for next year. So rather than having the number one draft pick, right? The number one draft pick is worth everything in all these sports. You, the draft is not as influential, although you can still get really good players after Robbie Robinson was picked, by the way. Daryl DK, Jack Mayer. So if the Miami man. was just better, if if Miami was just better at drafting, it would have been more useful. But you can, you could do that, which is like for bad teams, we are going to help you get better. One of the biggest problems with Major League Soccer is that it does not financially benefit winning teams. And in the name of parity, you lose excellence and greatness. And like teams that win do not get enough to help keep those teams together. It's one of the reasons MLS struggled to win CCL for so many years. You win, and at the parade, celebrating the win, you cut all of these guys on your roster, and then you go into the biggest tournament of the year three months later with a bunch of random newbies that you don't really want. And I would add, I don't think Seattle got anything for winning CCL to help keep the team together for the Club World Cup. I think to your point, I think it was when Atlanta won that the night they won, Greg Garza was told he was being traded. <laughs> like, like it's it's it is that level of absurdity. So here is my solution, and I'm now fully on board for this one. Uh, okay, if you win MLS Cup, you get to pick one player from the team that had the worst record, and you get to sign that player, and you get to give them the player you least want yes. from your team. So that's yes. how you do it. You pick up whatever player you want from them, and you can part with a player who either no longer fits your system or is a problematic player or has a contract that you no longer want and that contract just moves right with them. Uh, who cares about labor laws and freedom of movement? Uh, that's not a thing here. It's just do, a thing in Europe. I do like uh, Diego Rubio replacing Brandon Vasquez after he gets sold post MLS Cup. See? For Cincinnati see? from Colorado. See? We got this. I, I, think, I, I think I've solved it. Uh, I don't see any problems at all or any issues with salaries or budgets or anything like that. It should work just fine. Uh, all right. So we've answered some questions. We've talked about some teams that are eh, more or less panicking. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for uh, all of your contributions and hard work today. Right back at you, Taylor. And David Goss, good to have you back, my friend. I hope it was indeed a triumphant return for you. It was glorious. 
<laughs> I just need listeners to know that Goss is clearly checking his phone as I said that outro. So uh, glorious in the sense that he looked up in a panicked way and said it was glorious. Thank you for that, David. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we very much appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.